This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The moon plays a unique and vital role in the Earth's life, processes and ecosystems. It has also long played a central role in Indigenous culture. Recently, I was delighted to be joined by a panel of experts to discuss the Declaration of the Rights of the Moon, which they co-authored alongside Keradwin Dovey and Dr. Michelle Maloney. In this conversation, you'll hear from US-based nature rights advocate Mari Margul, as well as space archaeologist Dr. Alice Gorman and landscape architect Thomas Gooch. They talk about why we must protect the moon from human exploitation and damaging interference now more than ever, with plans to extract resources from the moon currently underway. I'm very, very excited to be welcoming three fantastic people who know each other quite well and work together on the development and release of the Declaration of Rights of the Moon. And we're going to be having a panel discussion about this declaration and all the issues that surround it. So we will get to that in just a sec, but I want to welcome my guests individually and I'll read them out one by one and they can say hello when they do so everyone knows who is who. So Thomas Gooch is a landscape architect and he's also founder of the Office of Planetary Observations. Welcome to the show, Thomas. Thanks, Amy. Lovely to be here. Great to have you. Welcome also to Dr. Alice Gorman, who is also known as Dr. Space Junk. She is a space archaeologist and an associate professor at Flinders University. She's a faculty member of the International Space University's Southern Hemisphere Space Program in Adelaide. Hi there, Alice, and welcome to the show. Hello, Amy. I'm really excited to be talking about this topic. That's so wonderful to hear. And a big welcome to Mari Margul, who's joining us actually from the United States. And Mari is a nature rights advocate and she is the executive director of the Centre for Democratic and Environmental Rights and has such a fascinating job and uh, advocates on all these issues and nature rights more broadly, not just obviously the rights of the moon, but she certainly is advocating on the ground here in Earth for all the threatened ecosystems here on planet Earth. So I welcome Mari now. Thank you so much for joining us too. Thank you so much for having me. Now, it's great to have you all, Thomas, Alice and Mari. And um, I've got to say, when I thought about the moon and when I heard about this Declaration of Rights of the Moon, it made a lot of sense to me. And that potentially is because I was aware of some of the developments in this space for other things, like, for example, the Wanganui River in New Zealand. There are a range of developments in the law relating to the rights of nature. So it doesn't, to me, seem like too much of a stretch to be extending that out to other environmental areas and natural areas that humans have visited and intend to actually engage with in various ways, some in a positive way and others maybe not so positive. So with that, I did want to, first of all, ask you all individually, from what lens and from what approach you've taken to this issue of the moon and the moon perhaps needing its own declaration of rights. And so 
I'd just love to hear about your background and your passion and your interest in the moon and what brought you to this declaration. And maybe I'll start with you, Thomas, who I know has been bringing together a number of panels with your colleagues here last year to discuss this very issue. Thanks, Amy. And um, yeah, great. Lovely to be here, I guess with a background in landscape architecture, have a lot of experience shaping cities and landscape and altering it all in the context of advocating for nature and bringing those systems in to cities. And founding Office of Planetary Observations is really about underpinning those city shaping decisions with environmental data from satellite. And we, we have that capacity now. So, you know, bringing that landscape perspective to lunar conversations in recent years and with Dr. Alice Gorman uh, being on all three panels, we've really suggested how the moon might, you know, how we might be there and inhabit place, but consider landscape. So my perspective around the declaration is how do we move away from an extract and repair mentality, but how do we go there with an intent towards stewarding natural systems as the first point, uh, wherever we are, in the universe. So I hope that gives a bit of context to my background and approach uh, Mm. as a start. And just to follow up on that, does that mean that you yourself would draw on, I guess, a range of approaches from historical perspectives, like, for example, our First Nations peoples in terms of their approach to country and land and nature? Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Considering drawing on that, that history, that knowledge, that wisdom, largely about a relationship with nature and landscape systems. And and then, yeah, that, that well is actually, we can utilise that going forwards into the universe and helping have a relationship with nature. And with tech at the moment, the golden age of satellites, we can underpin some of those decisions with data as well to kind of monitor and track how we inhabit landscapes. Yeah, it seems like it could be a very useful tool. Alice, let's hear from you. I know that when I read out the title Space Archaeologist, um, (laughs) it sounds like one of the coolest jobs you could have. What is your perspective and from what place are you coming when you think about the moon and also perhaps its need to have a declaration of rights? I guess I've kind of got two strands which converge on this. One is that Before I became a space archaeologist, I was a heritage consultant working mainly with uh, Aboriginal communities in Australia uh, as part of environmental impact assessments, things like that. And um, a large part of that work was actually in mining industry. So I I spent a lot of time in um, in the coal mines of the Hunter Valley and around central uh, South Australia on uranium and copper mines. So when the the whole thing about uh, lunar and asteroid mining started to become real, uh, I found I had opinions about this because I knew what the processes were on Earth and also the kinds of environmental impact processes that, that mitigate adverse impacts. So, so that's very much part of how I think about the moon. But I also applied those heritage skills to human heritage in the solar system uh, and looking at the moon with all of the locations we've now put human material culture, all of the probes and landers and, of course, the Apollo human landing sites. So I'm kind of thinking about the moon as, as Thomas was saying and as, as Mari will explain further, I'm sure. So it is about the moon having its own 
right to exist with its landscapes and systems intact, but also incorporating human perspectives and, and activities into that. Because I don't want to make a, a, a big separation like here's nature and here's what humans did and we have to get rid of that. Uh, and I guess this relates to Thomas's landscape approach as well. If you look at the moon as a cultural landscape, then we have to take all of these things into account. Yeah, and it seems like in the decades ahead, it will be very difficult to argue that it should be a, a completely separate, isolated place that no humans will ever kind of interact with again. It seems like we've kind of reached and gone far past that point in terms of physical contact with the moon. Of course, human and cultural contact and connection with the moon is such a very, very long historic and ancient thing, which I'd love to touch on in just a second. But I do want to ask you, Mari, it's great to, to chat with you and also get your perspective from this uh, legal standpoint and having worked so closely with groups who have tried to protect nature through the law, um, I'm really keen to hear from you about your experiences. I did read your Guardian piece of a couple of years ago and, you know, was really interested in the fact that in 2006, that was actually the first law that we saw recognising the legal rights of nature and it was enacted in the borough of Tamaqua, Pennsylvania in the US. And one of the organisations that you were associated with at the time, the Community Environmental Legal Defence Fund, helped that local council draft the law. So I know that you've had such a practical and on the ground as well as strategic involvement in, in that development of the nature rights and the law, not just in the US, but of course, you know, traveling the world and bringing together all the expertise and interest in this area. So from your perspective and your experiences, what do you come at this issue with? What kind of lens and experience and thoughts do you bring to a declaration of the rights of the moon? Well, I learned a great deal from Thomas and Alice about the threats to the moon over the past year um, with human interest, corporate interest, government interest in conducting extraction and other activities on the lunar surface. And that triggered for me so many lessons that we've had to learn here on Earth over and over and over again that human beings are astonishingly bad at preventing harm to the Earth. Our activities um, have just continuously expanded, colonized different places all over the Earth. The consequences of our actions have been ecosystem collapse and species extinction rates accelerating and climate change, of course, accelerating. We have a tendency to act first and maybe ask questions later after damage has already been done, damage that cannot be, you know, returned, returning an ecosystem or a species back to its whole natural healthy state. And so uh, part of the attraction to me and looking at the moon and what it might need to be protected is just learning the lessons that we have to learn over and over again here on planet earth that we cannot continue to treat the earth as existing to serve human needs and wants, which is really how we've been behaving and, and is embodied and ingrained into our legal and governing institutions really all over the world. You see within our environmental legal frameworks and countries, 
all over the planet in which our environmental laws legalize harm to the environment, which seems counterintuitive, but in fact is how it works. And we learning that lesson before we start causing these similar problems on the moon is really what's compelling me is let's not repeat the same thing over and over again. Let's learn before we cause the harm. Let's not bring the kind of human extractive, human constant use of the natural world, including the moon as a natural world. Let's not repeat that history. Let's learn from what's happened here on earth and not, let's not put it out into outer space. And so I was really drawn to this to say, we are within the, the movement to recognize that nature itself has legal rights even to exist. So much of that movement is building on the lessons that we've learned from what has come and continuing to happen because of human activity here on earth and that we need to make a fundamental shift in how we govern ourselves toward the natural world to bring it something even close to sustainability. And so drawing from that and applying it to the moon, let's stop our harmful activities before they can happen, which means that we need as a global community here on earth, recognize that the moon is a natural being and we need to give it our highest level of protection before we begin to think about how do we use the earth, the moon? Let's think about first, how do we protect the moon? Yeah, oh, it makes absolute sense. And certainly seeing how human-induced climate change has had so many unintended effects when early on, before science had been developed around the effect of fossil fuels in the industrial revolution on the environment, there was a kind of vested interests that arose from those industries, that arose from that great growth and change and degradation of our environment. And once those vested interests are kind of embedded and have realised the value of a certain property, and I guess we're talking about property in that way because um, the environment is seen as human property under the law and um, obviously not in some cultural groups, of course, but it does seem like it would be too late to do this post facto, to just try and paper over an issue that arose, perhaps an unexpected issue that might arise when we don't understand the science of the moon in terms of its landscape, in terms of our, how it completely behaves. Of course, we know some of it, but we don't understand nearly enough of it. Are your thoughts that the current legal frameworks around the moon would be and are insufficient to prevent the kind of exploitation that a number of private companies are seeking out already and are kind of making plans for. Yeah, I, I quite agree with that. And I, you know, it's just, I think there's a great deal of hubris that human beings bring to any new thing or new place that we think that we can that not only is it sitting there, you know, we're just waiting for us to use it, um, but that we, you know, that our actions won't have consequences. We have a tendency to act like, you know, like an elephant in a china shop, <laughs> as we often <laughs> use. Um, but I, and I think that, you know, so much of what I've learned from Alice and Thomas is that what we have in place now um, in terms of international space law is, is not sufficient to protect. Um, and Alice, you've spoken so clearly about this. I wonder if you want a response, you know, particularly about sort of the deficiencies or inadequacies 
that we have in international law right now as it regards the moon. Yeah, well, lots of people ask about the international regulatory environment when this topic comes up. And and I think it isn't sufficient at this point in time. So basically, we have the Outer Space Treaty, which was set up in 1967. And I think it's a great treaty. One of the things it does is prevent anyone claiming territorial ownership of anything in space. And I think that's a really key aspect uh, of what the treaty does. Uh, But it's under attack. A lot of people say it's holding back these private companies from going to the moon and exploiting their resources. But one thing I notice across all of the international conventions and treaties and guidelines is that there's a concept of the environment, which is, I I often say it's very thin. So there's an acknowledgement that other planets or moons exist and that they do have distinct environments. But because there's nothing alive there, well, you know, maybe there's something alive on Mars still, fingers crossed, but we're pretty certain there's nothing alive on the moon. So that translates into the idea that the moon is dead and that we have no moral obligation towards it. And lots of people get very upset if you suggest that the moon isn't dead. And we know it's, you know, it's an active body. There's seismic activity. It's constantly interacting with the rest of the solar system and the cosmos. Its environment is partially created by the constant bombardment with micrometeorites and cosmic rays and all of that kind of stuff. So it's not dead. Stuff is happening there. But Space people, especially space mining people, often get quite upset if you suggest it it isn't dead. And that's something that isn't present in any of the international things. So the Committee on Space Research, which is a big international body, is responsible for the planetary protection policy, which guides human actions on other worlds. And they've basically said the moon is a free-for-all because it's dead. So we've got some good, strong injunctions in place against claiming territory, which then enables a private company, for example, to do whatever it wants on the moon. So that's all great. But when it comes to the finer details, it's just missing. All of this stuff is just missing. And I think this was, you know, one of our motivations in making the Declaration of the Rights of the Moon, because there was really nothing else out there that asserted the right of the moon to exist for itself and not for us. So I think there's a lot of work to be done in bringing all of those treaties and regulations and guidelines more into line with how people on Earth, like Mari and Thomas, are thinking about these environments. Well, that's an excellent point. And it reminded me of the Moon Agreement of 1979, which apparently around 18 countries have signed, including Australia. And it does state that the moon and other celestial objects are, quote, common heritage of mankind. And that apparently, and I was surprised to hear this, that the USA, the government are unhappy with that particular phrase because it could restrict their ability to go and mine resources. And that was surprising to me that the moon agreement um, allows the use of moon resources, obviously with caveats. So it's really just to support scientific missions, but there is that 
allowability for some level of use of the moon to further scientific study and exploration if a country or I'm guessing a private company so chooses to do if they have the means and the technology and wherewithal to do that. So I wondered if you had any views on that particular statement, particularly the US government pushing back on that discussion around common heritage. Yeah, the US has been very clear that they reject this notion of common heritage which is really interesting, I I think, because their subsequent actions, so people might have heard of the Artemis Accords, which the US released last year, and the Artemis Accords are inviting countries to sign up. Australia has done that in, in a bilateral relationship. So they enter into a relationship with the US to work on going back to the moon. And what this does is or I think what the US is trying to do is close off multilateral agreements. Uh, And the Moon Agreement, which they reject, but they're not a signatory, and and they specifically have said that things like the common heritage of humanity uh, are, you know, right out the door. To me, it seems a little like they're trying to pick nations off one by one. And once this system of bilateral agreements is set up, it will be very, very difficult for the international community as a whole to make clear statements about what needs to happen on the moon. Now, there are a couple of other interesting documents. One is called the Hague Building Blocks, and this was created from a large international working group and released in 2019. And the Hague Building Blocks specifically talk about the importance of natural and cultural heritage And they also pick up on something that's in the Moon Agreement, which is that when it becomes, or it looks like it's going to become feasible to to mine on the Moon, that, uh, you know, an international council or committee should be set up to put in place the kinds of um, guidelines and principles that uh, people will need to follow when they go to the Moon. So that hasn't happened, even though everybody wants to go to the moon at the moment and mine it. And I think the Artemis Accords are in some ways directed uh, against allowing that to happen. And I don't think it would be that hard. I mean, the, the, the five of us got together and made this declaration of the rights of the moon. Uh, so, you know, if we can do that, I don't think it's really a big ask to to get the international community together to say, right, if you go to the moon, here are the uh, restrictions on what you can do. But, of course, there are some countries that um, are not happy with that because it restricts their ability to make profit from the moon. And one of the big concerns there is, the Artemis Accords contain a principle which is about safety zones. And on the surface of it, the safety zones are about if you have some kind of surface operation, then um, you don't want somebody else coming in there, putting themselves at danger or uh, messing up what you're doing. But some people argue that these safety zones are really a backdoor to a territorial claim. So we need to be keeping an eye on that because once that happens, the the barn door is open, the cat is out of the bag, and it's going to be a free-for-all on the moon. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Alice, for that explanation. That's fantastic. I want to go to the role of the moon in Earth's ecosystems, and then I'll go across to Mari, and then we'll get to the document itself and the wording of this declaration. So, Thomas and Alice, in terms of the ecological role of the moon 
here on Earth, it's far away in a very obvious sense, but it does have a very strong presence and a very strong role here on Earth in terms of lighting up the night sky, in terms of the effect on ocean tides, and also even some particular creatures, living creatures, look to the moon and are aware of just how bright moonlight is and they use the moon and the brightness of the moon to be able to decide when they need to reproduce. And so I wanted to get a sense from you both about the scientific role and the ecological role of the moon and also the cultural role of the moon here on Earth, what it means for us and to us and kind of for us to understand how it plays a role, not just in us looking up into the sky and, you know, admiring its beauty, but what are some of the other things that it does in terms of its function? I might just speak to that, Amy, I guess, to that effect, uh, you know, where the biological processes you're talking about are, are in response and relationship to the moon. There's a system there that's happening uh, through plant growth, through animal cycles on Earth, uh, but it's all relative to patterns and systems. And, you know, to Alice's point of having called the moon dead, it really limits the understanding that there's systems that exist on the moon and allows us to enter that uh, ecology, for a better word, to towards changing it and altering it beyond what we know will cause harmful effect just yet so it's better to integrate into an alive universe than dominate a dead one because you're opening up opportunities for systems unknown and for discovery uh, and there's a fantastic mission called seven sisters which is an australian mission to launch a satellite to actually circumnavigate the moon towards remote sensing for for minerals and understanding and that understanding is going to grow in time so the declaration sets up that, that relationship. And that, that comes to down what Alice can speak about also is about shadows on the moon, mm-hmm. uh, about lighting patterns, asteroid seasons and, and, and lunar dust as well. And maybe Alice wants to expand on that. I just want to say, Thomas, I, I love what you just said. It's better to integrate into a live universe than dominate a dead one. That is just a perfect way of, of I think, summing up what we were hoping to do with the declaration and what I think a lot of us um, strongly believe. And I think one of the things here is, is these are not separate places. The moon and the earth are so closely linked and, and strongly integrated. And, and Thomas mentioned um, I'm a little bit obsessed with shadows on the moon and how they create a unique lunar landscape but if you think about it as well like when we're standing on the surface of the earth looking up towards the moon in the night sky it's patterned it's got uh, light and dark it's got ridges and shadows and craters and you know you can see them more closely if you're lucky enough to have uh, a telescope or uh, a good pair of binoculars and the light and dark on the moon is is very much part of how humans have perceived it over the centuries. You know, there are countless stories and systems of knowledge that are based around observation of the moon and its surface. And certainly something that could happen if humans do too much to the surface of the moon is we could alter its albedo. We could alter that pattern of light and dark and actually change what you see on the surface. Now, maybe that's not going to make a lot of difference to to moths or other animals that use the moon for navigation or for 
controlling their own biological cycles, but it's certainly going to have a huge impact on how humans regard the moon. And I suppose it's worth adding here as well, like, you know, the tides is a pretty obvious way most people would understand about how the moon interacts with with the earth as a system. But that cyclicity of the light is also something it, it, it is used to structure human behaviour, uh, it has a huge impact on animal behaviour in terms of what we even see on the landscape during the night time and how we move about it. It's used as a, you know, a biological signal for so many different species on the surface of the earth. And, you know, maybe some of them are not really going to notice if um, mining activities are taking place there. But there's also, there's so much we don't know about the moon and there's so much we don't know about the Earth as well. So at this point in time, I think there's something called the precautionary principle, which is that you you know you go forward in the world aiming to do no harm. And I think this is something that we need to keep in mind as we're thinking about altering our relationship to the moon. And it is critical not to think of it as this thing out there that's got nothing to do with us. It's literally been part of life on Earth since it was ejected from uh, from Earth back, I think it's about 4 billion years ago. Oh, obviously, there wasn't life on Earth at that stage, but it's been part of the evolution of Earth uh, from the very beginning. And our little tiny, narrow perspective from the year 2021 on the surface of Earth, when we've really only been investigating these things for you know, a couple of hundred years, how can we even begin to comprehend what this means? Yeah, yeah. that's so true. Um, and to, can I just add, oh, Amy, go ahead. Yep. To, to that point, uh, you know, the Western law, what we've learned from myself, I've learned from uh, Dr. Michelle Maloney, co-author, and also Mari, is how much Western law actually dominates nature and sets up that destruction from the get-go. So the rights of nature movement, maybe Mari can speak about this, looks to shift that relationship towards uh, taking nature from a minority towards being a stakeholder in the decision-making process and at the table as part of that. So it really sets up, building what Alice said, an ongoing uh, relationship to learn more as we move forwards, but we've got that principle practice in place towards encompassing the understandings into our actions uh, to mm. ensure, ensure the health of nature uh, exists for future generations as well. So true. And um, Mari, that did actually go straight into my next question. So thank you, Thomas. I wanted to understand from your perspective about how the rights of nature actually as a, an area has developed. And do you think that the propulsion or development and advancement in this area has been from grassroots groups in the community talking about these issues and pushing for changes to law. What's been your experience in your observation about the different types of challenges to the current legal framework and how they've been used to advance the rights of nature? What we have seen, of course, in my home country of the United States, but also in countries around the world, is you have people at the grassroots People and people who might be, you know, actively organizing at the national level in their country, everyone has come up against the existing set of environmental laws within their home, own home country and found them quite inadequate to be able to protect the environment. 
environmental laws treat, you know, everywhere around the world, treat nature as an object that exists for human use and, and environmental laws regulate how humankind uses nature. So for instance, we in the United States have mountaintop removal mining, which environmental laws legalizing the explosions on the top of mountains in order to mine coal. Fracking is explosions underground to mine or extract gas and oil. We legalize, authorize the use of the natural world and the exploitation of the natural world in order to take the resources that the natural world has to offer. And in the process of that, we have we destroy ecosystems and species, and, and we're lit, quite literally changing the weather on our own home planet. And the difficulty that people around the world have found is that when they look to existing environmental law to protect them and protect the environment, they simply can't do it because the environmental laws that we have were not designed to protect nature. They were designed to regulate how we use nature. And there's been this sort of growing understanding, a common conclusion that has stretched across political jurisdiction, across cultures, across kinds of ecosystems and languages in which people have said, we, we cannot continue in this way. We need to make a really fundamental shift in our relationship with nature and how we treat nature itself under the law from being this object of use to being a subject with rights, even that most basic of rights to exist. And that has really driven the rights of nature movement, people coming up against the existing environmental laws, finding them unable to protect nature and needing to move to a place where human beings are not the center and intention of the law, but the law is actually moving to a place where we recognize that human beings are part of, not superior to nature, and that we are dependent upon nature. And thus we need to change how we make decisions about our relationship with nature. How do we make decisions about how we use nature so that we protect nature first and foremost, which is you know, as selfish as can be because we need nature for ourselves to survive, but also recognizing that a healthy ecosystem, a healthy natural world requires us to put the brakes on the way that we have been living, which has been truly destructive. Mm. And so the rights of nature movement is moving many people say from like an anthropocentric view of the world to more of an ecocentric view of the world so that we begin to have human behavior and interaction with the natural world being based on trying to establish a harmonious relationship rather than a destructive relationship. And yeah. the lessons of that and applying it to sort of you know, I, the next frontier, if we can say that about the moon is saying, let's not do what we've done here on earth. Let's, let's learn from that. And let's understand that our actions without having a proper frame in mind, without having the proper legal frameworks in place that recognize the moon as a, a natural being that has even that basic right to exist, we're just going to repeat that same history on the moon and anywhere else we choose to explore within outer space. And that's not sustainable. That's not harmonious. And, and, you know, it's really not bringing the best of the human spirit forward. Can I just add, yep. add to that? That's, it's what Murray's talking about. It's not unreasonable. It's not utopic. It's, um, it's very current. You know, Elizabeth Warren just announced yesterday they want to spend $500 billion on creating 
one million green infrastructure jobs. And this is where you build in plants, nature, natural systems into the lands and cities to actually encourage those systems. So there's a real movement on earth towards valuing nature. And Mari's really setting up that pre-dialogue going into the moon and the universe about how to start that from the get-go. Yeah. And in terms of the global picture, I know that Ecuador enshrined the rights of nature of Mother Earth in its constitution, uh, which was the first country to do that. And subsequently, Bolivia put in place a law of Mother Earth. And there have been other court rulings, for example, in India and Colombia that ruled that ecosystems possess rights. So there is this uh, move in different ways to try and enshrine the rights of nature through the constitution or through case law or through through other legislation. But I wonder whether, Mari, when you were talking about the fact that we are still working within this people-centric view and that, you know, for example, legal personhood has been given to a river, for example, in New Zealand, whether we should be working within these frameworks and that's the best way to move forward when we're thinking about making rights for planets and for the natural environment that we currently reside in here on Earth, or whether there is a different way, a different framework that we should be thinking of, especially with the moon, a living entity like the moon, which is different in a way to what we are, you know, inhabiting here on Earth. The rights of nature movement and the laws and court decisions that you cited, those are actually moving outside the existing uh, legal system. They're creating a whole new system of law to protect nature. And I think Colombia's constitutional court ha, you know, wrote in one of its decisions recognizing the rights of a river that you know, sort of in, captured this idea that we, knew we need to move beyond, we need to evolve beyond where we have been in terms of humans' relationship with the natural world and how we've embedded that into legal systems. We need to evolve past that to recognize ourselves as part of the Earth community. Um, and I think we can build the moon very easily into what the Earth community contains. Um, and so I think we've actually, the rights of nature laws are really about building a new framework because existing frameworks are not doing the job because they were never designed to. They were designed to allow us to use nature really as quickly as possible. Moving to create this new structure, I think is very necessary as we face these overlapping environmental crises around the globe. And I think we really need to be very careful about exporting our behavior onto the moon and to other planets and celestial bodies, because it's very, very difficult to dial that back. And as we engage with biologists and other scientists, you know, they say that it's, it's just so difficult to try to mitigate or restore a wetland, for example, to its natural. It's just, it's quite impossible to do that in a really true way. What we have to do is prevent the harm before it happens. And that's mm -hmm. really the position that we're looking at is we know that we need to protect before we cause harm. And what is the legal process to do that? And recognizing within our laws, the highest form of legal protection that we have in human written law, which is legal rights, that's really the perspective that we're bringing not only to protecting nature here on Earth, but also on protecting the moon. 
I'm speaking with Mari Margul, nature rights advocate. I'm also speaking with Dr. Alice Gorman, also known as Dr. Space Junk, a space archaeologist. And I'm speaking with Thomas Gooch, a landscape architect. And we are discussing a document that they co-authored, the Declaration of Rights of the Moon and the obviously associated issues with that. Thomas, I wanted to now get into the declaration itself and, of course, Alice and Mari and talk about some of the decisions that you were making in putting this document together because it does read like it has been edited very carefully and each word has been selected for a reason. So I wondered if you could take us through what you were thinking of when you were drafting this declaration and what you were hoping that it would specifically bring to our attention and then also provide as a kind of catalyst for further discussion and change. Great, yeah, and just to acknowledge the other two co-authors, Dr Michelle Maloney and Keridwin Dovey, I guess we all brought a unique perspective from our backgrounds and our vision and that actually created quite a robust discussion, to say the least, um, in terms of just starting with the approach and intention, which was really about giving voice to the moon and giving it some rights as a starting point. And then absolutely correct, Amy, we really knuckled into uh, each word and probably could continue still uh, getting down to what do we mean, what are we trying to say, how does the word ecosystem actually apply to, to the moon is that is that relevance? Is it only biologically relevant? And starting to nut that out. And I think with two lawyer minds at the table, that 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 really helped as well to get mm. get clar- clarity on some some words. And from my perspective, it was just about setting up the moon to have rights. And as Mari says, how do we evolve culturally towards engaging with nature as a partner? So it took time to shape, and we didn't always agree. And that was the great thing about it. And we, we wanted to kind of position this as a starting point for discussion beyond ourselves, having done this work, knowing it can open up opportunities towards reassessing our relationship with nature. Alice? Amy, could I actually read a little bit? Of I would love you to. I'd rather you do it than I, so <laughs> go for it. I'm, I'm going to pick up on the second main statement of rights. So the moon possesses fundamental rights which arise from its existence in the universe, including the right to exist, persist and continue its vital cycles unaltered, unharmed and unpolluted by human beings, the right to maintain ecological integrity, the right to be defined as a self-sustaining, intelligent, cohesive, intact lunar ecosystem beyond current human comprehension, the right to independently maintain its own life-sustaining relationship with the Earth's environment and living creatures, and the right to remain a forever peaceful celestial entity unmarred by human conflict or warfare. So that's basically the core of the rights of the moon as we work them out over uh, nearly a year of discussion and debate and rewriting and thinking about what all of this meant and how people might interpret or perceive it. I love that last point about a peaceful celestial entity unmarred by human conflict or warfare because it does make you think that given human history and the patterns of conflict that this could become a contested space not just in a legal sense or in a verbal sense but in that physical sense as well. 
some years ago, I was in a, a library in a defence institution, and I came across a book that was actually written in the 80s, and it was an analysis commissioned by the US Congress on what warfare on the moon would look like. And it even got down to the level of how you would conduct hand-to-hand combat in the distinct lunar environment with the very unique way shadows and light work. And I have to tell you, when I read that book and thought that people were thinking about this from a military perspective, from probably from at least the time the Apollo missions went to the moon, I found that horrifying and frightening. Gosh, that is absolutely astounding, but then not that surprising. It's scary to think that we've been planning for something like that for, gosh, what is it now, four decades at least, um, at least in that printed book. But obviously in the human imagination, perhaps it goes far back beyond that. I want to close out this discussion from each of you and hearing from each of you in terms of what you want anyone listening to take away from this declaration, but also your understanding of the moon and why you're so invested in it and what you feel needs to be a next step. And obviously this is one of them, which is having public discussions, which you have been doing already and that we're doing here today. But what are some of the things that you wish people knew about the moon about the rights of nature or the rights of the moon and what you want to see next? Yeah, look, I can kick off. I guess discussion is key. And we ran three public forums uh, in the last three years around landscape and the moon. And this is the next iteration of that. Uh, So it'd be really great for people to just have the discussion around what it means, how we could move forwards culturally uh, into the solar system. And what that means, I've come to terms with I'm part of the extractive economy and I'm embedded in it, but how do we structurally change that? And this rights of nature movement allows a next step towards that and beyond is then, well, how do we govern and how do we communicate those rights uh, through technology, perhaps through boards or otherwise, or groups that can kind of speak on behalf of those rights. So I think they're the next steps for me. Mari? Thank you. I have sort of two two thoughts in my mind on this. Number one, I think here on Earth, we have to look to our own past, our own history, as well as even contemporarily, we have movements not only around the rights of nature, but for the rights of uh, different peoples who've had to struggle for rights and protections under the law. And the point being that social change, that sort of fundamental social change um, is possible. We we are capable as human beings of struggling for rights and ending oppression, ending injustice, um, and transitioning, transforming our laws and governance to being more positive, more protective, more recognizing um, that people, the natural world, are in need of protection. And so we have a lot of examples of this throughout history. Um, and I think we need to continue to do it. And we are beginning to do it with respect to nature. So change is possible. I think this past year of pandemic, we have saw some of that when human beings were able to see clear skies, for instance, over New Delhi for the first time in goodness knows how long. Change is possible. So I, I, I take great hope and inspiration from that. 
And the other thing I take great hope and inspiration from is that throughout my life, space exploration, space travel, you know, the, you know, sending the landers to Mars, for instance, those have things that have brought people on Earth together. You know, the wonder and the excitement around, you know, the space exploration, landing on the moon and so on. Those are things that have, I think, shown the best of humanity. And I really hope it doesn't transition us to becoming some of the worst of humanity by using it ultimately to be exploitive um, of the moon and other parts of outer space. I think we really need to build on that best of humanity that can bring wonder to all of us. Uh, and I think that we can do that, but we have to have the intention to do it before we start down the road towards destruction and exploitation. Yeah. Alice. Well, when I talk to people about the plans to mine the moon and extract its resources, I find pretty generally that people are shocked to learn about this. Like they're genuinely stunned to think that there are missions being planned to go and mine the moon. So I think we need to make sure that people know what is going on so that they can be informed and make their own decisions. I mean, many of them may want this to happen and that's fine, but they have to have the information. And I think, the, as Thomas said, the declaration is about putting another view out there, giving us another strand of, of ways to understand how we're going to go forward into the universe. The other thing I think is critical because... Uh, Mari's point about uh, environmental laws on Earth not actually being intended to protect nature is absolutely true. But all the same, we have got a lot of processes on Earth that have been tested over time. But those communities are not the same as the space community. So that so the space community hasn't yet really drawn on all of the precedents and the scholarship and the things that we've learned from seeing all of this stuff play out on Earth, and I think that's a critical step, not reinventing the wheel, going back to what we know from everything we've been doing on Earth and taking from that what we can to go forward, as Thomas said, to better integrate into a live universe rather than dominating a dead one. It's been such a delight to talk to all of you and really, really thought-provoking to hear from the very different perspectives here on the panel, but obviously there is a lot of consensus and it certainly comes together in this declaration of the rights of the moon, which you, as you said, co-authored with Kara Dwendovi and Dr. Michelle Maloney. So I do want to say a huge thank you to you three, Thomas Gooch, Dr. Alice Gorman and Mari Margul for joining me today. And I also um, wanted to highlight the fact that there is a Facebook group on the declaration of the rights of the moon which is public so anyone can join this group to read about the declaration which is also up on the earthlaws.org.au website and they can also be part of that discussion and that grassroots movement and um, start to participate and think about these issues more and obviously it's great to have such a diverse range of experiences with you the co-authors really drawing on all of your expertise to put together this document. So thank you today for chatting with us and furthering the discussion here, but also thank you for putting together this declaration and moving this forward for everyone. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks so much, Amy. 
I've just been chatting with three wonderful people who happen to be the co-authors, among two others, of the Declaration of the Rights of the Moon, which you can find, as I said, on the earthlaws.org.au website. And I've just been chatting with Thomas Gooch, landscape architect and founder of the Office of Planetary Observations, Dr Alice Gorman, also known as Dr Space Junk, who is a space archaeologist based at Flinders University, and Mari Margul, nature rights advocate and executive director of the Centre for Democratic and Environmental Rights, who very kindly dialled in from the US. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.